0: Good morning, y'all. My name, <coughs> excuse me, my name is Ed Griffinagan. I'm one of the pastors on the staff here at Church on the Trail. I'm thankful that you are here. Let me start off, say this, and um, it's often that <coughs> that I'll stand up here um, preaching a message and I'll quote Spurgeon. I'll quote A.W. Tozer or Pink or R.C. Sproul or any number of theologians that are infinitely smarter than I could ever be. I'm going to quote James. He said, every breath is a rental. Y'all, somebody write that down. I mean, what an incredible quote. Now, the next time I say it, I'll say, I heard somebody say, every breath is a rental. And the next time I'll say, and like I always say, every breath is a rental. (laughs) Had an old real estate trainer that used to tell me that's the way you quote people. But anyway, y'all, we're in the uh, in the midst of walking through, you see, the, the message series that we're in. We're walking through Acts, and we have been for over a year, really about a year and a half. But we're in Paul's second missionary journey, kind of in the middle of that. And when we left off last week, Paul, Silas, and Timothy had been in Thessalonica, and then they had Go down, uh, move down a little southwest to Berea, and uh, and then Paul is whisked away to Athens, which is almost due south of of Berea, and it's Acts chapter 17. We're going to be in the latter half of Acts 17 today. So I want to read for us uh, beginning in in uh, verse 16. We're going to break this up in two little sections today, but starting in verse 16. Luke writes this. Luke's the the human author of the book of Acts. He says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, so Paul's gone to Athens, he's waiting for Luke and, uh, excuse me, not Luke, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy. It says, His spirit was provoked within him. Now I want you to know this too. Acts. The Bible's not a history book. When the Bible speaks of history, it's true, accurate, real, genuine, authentic history. It's real. It's not some made-up stories. It's real history. And so you can trust the book of Acts as a, as a, it's a theological history, but it's history. So when we read the facts and the figures and all this stuff in Acts, the stuff really happened. It's not this made-up book of myths. So. It says, Paul's waiting for for Silas and, and Timothy in Athens, and it says, His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. That means he got a little angry when he sees the city is full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. You know, he always went to the synagogue first. And he reasoned with them and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who just happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, foreign gods. <clears throat> because they said that because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may, that's a cool word to say, Areopagus. May we, may we know what this teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So we'll see a few things in this, in these, this longer passage. We're going to see a few things in here today. The first is this, that, that, that we, we see lots of different sets of ears. Now I know I say stuff in weird ways. But we we see lots of different sets of ears. And if you don't have a worship guide, I want you to raise your hand or something. Let us get one in your hands. There's some fill-in-the-blanks, and this is the first one. Ultimately, the gospel, there's one down here too as well. Ultimately, the gospel falls on, it did then and it does now, and it did in the time in between, falls on a bunch of different kinds of folks. The gospel falls on many different, a variety of, of people. Verse 17, we see the first two. In the first two, the gospel falls on Jewish ears and the gospel falls on devout people's ears. De- the scripture calls a devout person a God-fearer, which would be somebody who kind of believes in God, but they're not Jewish. So the first two are th- is that bucket of people and then, uh, and then the Jews. And then the third group of people that we see in here, the Bible tells verse 17, just everyday folks who just happened to be there. The text says they just happened to be there. And then verse 18 mentions the Epicureans and the Stoics. And the Epicureans and the Stoics were the philosophers in Greek culture, the smarty pants, the the, the intelligentsia of the day. They were the guys that were all the smart people. At least they, they thought they were the smart people. The Epicureans believed that the chief purpose for living, the chief purpose for life itself was really two things, pleasure and happiness. Y'all do know happiness is fleeting, that happiness is bound by time. But the Epicureans were all about pleasure and they were all about happiness. And if, if God existed, then he was a God that didn't interfere into human affairs. He didn't get in the middle of all of of our business. Epicureans, if we said, what were they like today? They're, they're people today who are crazy materialistic and, and crazy hedonist. H-E-D-O-N-I-S-T. Hedonists are all about pleasure. The life's all about just feeling good. The Epicureans, for them, the world just randomly came into existence. It was just a chance thing. Roll the dice enough times and pfft, we got a world. You know, throw a box of scrabble tiles up and at some point, if you do it enough... At some point, it's going to land in the first line of Hamlet or something. It's just a chance random thing, right? If they thought, if there are gods, they are remote and they are distant and they don't want to have anything to do with you, man is left on his own to discover his own truth and and to figure out how to have pleasure in life. They believe there was nothing after death, no heaven, no hell, no reward, no punishment. Man simply returns He starts off as worm dirt and just returns to the dust of the earth. That's the Epicureans. The Stoics, they were followers of a guy named Zeno. Zeno taught from a porch called a stoa. That's where the S-T-O-A, that's where the word stoic comes from. They were pantheistic. They believed that some, there was some great purpose that was directing history and our responsibility as human beings was to align ourselves with this, this mystical great purpose through obligation and through self-discipline and through hard work. Well, that obviously led to massive pride and self-sufficiency because it leads to this idea, this thought. I'm the master of my destiny. I'm the one that's in control. I'm the one that calls the shots. And that's, what, that's, that's the natural uh, in state of the stoics pantheism i said a minute ago that word means all is god pan means all and theism it refers to god so it's the pantheist all is god almost like anything is god you want to worship that pole right there and that for you then that pole is god you the the god is in the tree no 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 god created the tree but for a pantheist you want to the tree, you want the tree to be God, then the tree is God for you. You know, Isaiah said you can take a piece of wood off a tree and you're going to make a fire and cook some hot dogs on it, roast some marshmallows on it. You're going to take that same piece of wood and carve up some crazy-looking statue and then worship that as God. Y'all, that's nonsense. But for the pantheist, anything is God. The tree, the flower, your dog, you know, whatever. That that ideology, that philosophy you see it in Hinduism, you see it in Buddhism, you see it in any real new agey religion, you see it in Scientology, you see it in Christian science. They're all pantheist. Does that make sense? Well, that's comes straight from the Stoics. So you had all these people in Athens, you got all these people in the United States, but you got all these people in Athens and they're searching every philosophy and they're searching um, every school of thought investigate and all kind of stuff, but they always, always fall short in finding truth. The truth that really is only found in the living God that we worshiped by song just a little while ago. So they, they always come up empty. They'd searched and they had really come up empty for so long that they really found meaning only in almost like in the Search. You know, they found meaning, verse 21 tells us, and you've got in your worship guide, you've got all the, the passages up there, and I'll be popping some up on the screen. But they had searched and come up empty for so long that, that verse 21 said it's almost like they, they just want to talk about new and novel ideas. They actually want to know, verse 19 tells us, they said, we want to know this new teaching that, that Paul is presenting. We want to know what it means. Gets us to verse 22. Let me jump in there. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, so Paul begins to preach. He said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I, there's a hint, uh, just a, a hint of sarcasm in there. I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription To the unknown God. Do y'all know, too, that archaeologists have found hundreds of altars that have an inscription on them that says, to this unknown God or gods. I said it's real history. So Paul says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul's about to lay the hammer down. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, Yet he's actually not far from each of us. That's a major line. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said. Paul's quoting a couple of secular poets here. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, of what? Of this man that he has uh, appointed, of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, that guy, from the dead. Now, when the Stoics and the Epicureans and all the people that just happened to be there, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we're going to hear from you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some, some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So you had all these smarty folks, these smarty pants people in Athens. And y'all, here's a little tidbit. Paul wasn't no dummy. Paul was schooled in Tarsus. Tarsus was really an educational center in all of of that area of Galatia. And uh, Paul had all the training. Paul had all the knowledge to lay out this this case for his beliefs persuasively and, and clearly. Paul had spent much of his life thinking about and reasoning through God's word, so now and Paul knew how to do it. Paul was good at what he did, so rather than arguing the scriptures with these smarty folks in in um, in Athens, you know, he reasoned with the through the scriptures initially with with a Jewish audience. Paul adapted the message, and he backs up. He like takes a breath, and he and he backs up a couple of steps to talk about a creator, to talk about the creator, to talk about the one who spoke everything into existence. And then he moves towards talking about a savior, and then he moves from there talking about a judge. So these people in Athens had built this, this altar, this this idol um, to the unknown God for fear of missing out on blessings or, to, to, or out of a fear of some kind of punishment. And the philosophers in Athens, for the most part, I said a minute ago, they either believed in a whole bunch of gods or they believe that everything was God. Obviously, Paul's not putting his stamp of approval on that, that line of thought. But he took that line of thought. He took that inscription that was on that, that altar as an entry point to have a discussion with these people about the one true, real, living God. And what I'm talking about, y'all, is, is tailoring the message. Tailoring the message. Paul jumps in by highlighting, what does he say in verse 22, where, whether we think and feel that it's, there's some sarcasm or not. Paul jumps in and he, he acknowledges their spiritual interest. The way he does this is a good example for you and I on how to communicate the gospel. Paul didn't start off reciting Jewish history like he would when he approached Jews because that would have been meaningless to the Greeks. They wouldn't have thought one thing about that. He began by building a case for God. By building a case for the Lord using examples that the philosophers understood. And then he established some common ground by emphasizing the things that they could agree on about God. And then he finally moves the message to Jesus, laser focusing on the resurrection, verse 30 and 31. Laser, it is all about the resurrection. And Paul always got to the resurrection. So when you witness to people. When you share the gospel. Use this example like. The way Paul does. He uses examples. He he establishes a common ground. And then he nudges people. uh, Towards a decision. About Jesus. So tailor the message. So Paul goes. And he tailors the message. But then. But then he makes the vague specific. And he does this uh, in verse 24 and 25. And he, he explains this one true, living, authentic God, Yahweh. He explained him to these educated men and women in Athens. And even though these men were, quote, very religious, and Paul acknowledges that, they didn't know God. In our world, we would have, many would confess and acknowledge that we live in a, a Christian society. But to most people, God is still unknown. And you and I need to proclaim who He is and what He did for all mankind through His Son. Don't assume for a second that the, the spiritual people or the religious people or maybe even people who would somehow confess or profess to be Christian don't just assume that they know Jesus don't just assume that they even know the importance of placing um, saving faith and saving trust in him A, a personal intimate relationship with the creator of the universe is critical And it's not just critical, it's available to you and me. And if that doesn't exist, that relationship doesn't exist, the only thing that you and I bring to the table is works and good deeds. And we could never have enough works and good deeds ever to warrant a relationship with the Lord. So Paul begins this presentation Of the Lord. He presents him as the creator. The one who made, verse 24 says, the one who made the world and everything in it. And then from a pretty general description of the creator, Paul dives down into some specifics. In verse 26, he claims that God made all mankind from one man. That would have probably ticked off the Greeks because they believed absolutely. That they were racially superior to every other human on the planet. And not only did, and Paul's explaining, not only did this God create the nations, but he determined the periods and he determined the wares and the boundaries of where they would be. And the purpose of all that, verse 27 tells us, is that so that they should seek God and find him. This unknown God that they write on their little inscription, this unknown God is is not only knowable, he is knowable, but but I said a little while ago, I said this one little sentence is so powerful. He's not only knowable, but he is actually not far from each one of us. Because, you know, they believed if God existed, I said it a bit ago, that it was this God that was way out there far away. I want us to understand, like every one of us, that that he is not some distant, removed God in seclusion hiding from you that has as the epicureans believed just washed his hands of all human affairs and can't be approached approached no he wants you he will hunt you down he will hunt you up a tree he will chase you all the days of your life he wants a relationship with you and he's not a he's not a god like the stoics believed that demands from you work and effort and struggle and strife and a hundred push-ups and a hundred sit-ups for you to be able to have a relationship and know him. No, y'all, it's all about the relationship. It's not all about the striving and the the work and the effort. It's not, y'all. Rudy. Always got to turn it back to Rudy, man. Rudy, my, my dachshund, you see he's resting on the word. So Rudy, Rudy, Rudy and I got a relationship like we do. My wife sometimes is jealous of my relationship with Rudy. But Rudy and I got a relationship like we die for each other, right? We got a relationship. Rudy told me this story. And he'll tell you this story about him and this German shepherd. Next door, in the house we used to live in, they're arguing about who is the greatest. You know, that's not just a Bible story about people arguing about who the greatest. Rudy and German Shepherd arguing about who's the greatest, and the German Shepherd argued that he was bigger and badder and smarter and stronger. And and and, and, and Rudy said, "No, no, 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 no." He said, "I'm cuter than you are stronger." And so the German Shepherd, open to a to a challenge. The German Shepherd asked Rudy, he said, let's test our greatness by seeing which one of us can get in our respective homes first. And Rudy agreed to the challenge because Rudy ain't scared, y'all know that. Rudy ain't scared of nothing. So Rudy said, I'm in. And the German Shepherd, Rudy said, you can go first because you know he's a giving dog. So th- the German Shepherd goes first. And with his strength, he jumps up on the house next door where he lived, he jumps up on the door, and he, he puts his mouth around the doorknob, and he's working, trying to turn the doorknob, and he can't quite get it. He jumps up, and he puts his paws up there, and he's, he's twisting, and he's, he's turning all over the place. After like five or six minutes, he had twisted and tweaked and turned it enough. He got the door open. The German Shepherd did. And he was a little worn out, but he looks down at Rudy. He said, take that, little man. He said, I done opened the door. Now it's Rudy's turn. Well, Rudy just bebops up to our front door, and he jumped up, and he scratched a little bit, and I heard him scratching because we got a relationship, and I walked over there and opened the door and let him in. It took like 30 seconds. (laughs) Y'all, religion requires hard work and hard effort and twisting and turning. Hard work to get the knobs turned, but relationship requires a lot less because Rudy knew how to get his master's attention. The God of this book, y'all, he wants a relationship with you. This book is this majestic love story of us jacking it up right down here at the beginning. And him, think about the best, him hunting us down, chasing us, not to kill us. Chasing us because he wants that relationship with us. You just got to cry out to him. You just got to scratch the door. Just scratch the door. Jump up on your hind legs and scratch the door. Because he wants that relationship. And so really Paul is exposing some false ideas that the Greeks had. First of all that God was unknowable. Second of all that God lived in man-made temples or even needed man-made temples. And then that uh, this, this really false idea that God was not involved nor cares about our affairs. Verse 29 and 30, Paul starts to wrap this message up. And he's like, since all of this stuff is true, maybe, this is Paul talking, all this is true, maybe you people need to make some changes. Maybe your thinking had been incorrect and you needed to, to, you needed your thinking to change. Maybe you need your mind needs to be renewed a little bit. He writes about that later in Romans chapter twelve. That they didn't need to think of God as some as this little statue, that human beings carved out of a piece of rock. No, He's bigger and more awesomer than all of that. And this is a a very serious word to the Athenians, and it would serve them really well to hear it. To really hear it and to respond, not just to hear it, but to respond to it. He says their failure to respond in the past, for whatever reason, was nothing compared to what was being offered now in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And Paul, he kind of finishes out this statement by saying maybe in the past, ignorance of the law was a little bit of a, an excuse, but, but now... It's not. Now you've got to repent. You've got to turn because there's a judgment day that is looming out there somewhere on the horizon. And this righteous judge named Jesus will be sitting on the bench. And he confronts the folks ultimately here with the resurrection. Because he, that's what he always does. He preaches the risen Christ. He preaches the gospel. So he confronts them with the resurrection and, and, and really its meaning for all of us, and that's either blessings or punishment. And frankly, the Greeks had no concept of, of judgment. Most of them preferred worshiping many gods instead of just one. And, and although their gods may have become angry from time to time, there was not any, ever any real accountability the way that Paul was explaining this. 600 years earlier, the prophet Daniel, he's writing about the Son of Man. A name for the Messiah. He's writing about the Son of Man. That was to come because this is 600 years earlier, he says in Daniel chapter 7. He says, And to him, and he's talking about the Messiah, so, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, that his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And, you know, all judgment had been given to the one. All judgment had been given to the one who had been raised from the dead. Jesus Christ. All judgment given to him. The one that Paul had been proclaiming ever since he walked in the door in Athens. And to the, to the, to the Greek mind the, the very idea of resurrection was ridiculous, like just ridiculous, so far-fetched and so unbelievable and so offensive to their, to their intellect. But the whole gospel hinges on the resurrection. Paul knew and he understood that in the Greek mind that that issue was going to offend their precious little philosophies. But he didn't hold back the truth. Paul would often change his approach to fit the audience, just like he did here. But he would never change the message. And there's a massive principle that you and I got to embrace in that. And I'm afraid that the church in the last hundred years has has not embraced this principle. And that is that the strategy may change, but the message Never changes. Y'all get that? That is a monumental truth. Just a few years later, Paul writes to the folks in Corinth, which is actually right around the corner from Athens. And he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He's if the resurrection didn't happen, like what are we even doing here? So he knew that the mention of the resurrection would garner some immediate response, some immediate reaction from these from the in, to in, intelligentsia, these people. How absurd a thing to ever believe! How absurd! So some laughed at him, they mocked him, they scoffed him. And I will never forget, y'all, the night of January 17, 2001, the night of the morning that I got saved. The night that I went out to my parents' house, who if you don't know me, my, come from a Jewish family, and my parents are Jewish, and I grew up Jewish. This is in 2001, and, and, and when I sat down and talked to them, and one of the, the very first thing that my mom said is that she said, You don't actually believe that he came back to life, do you? You're smarter than that, Edward. That's what she said. Mocked, y'all, is the word that Paul used in verse 32 for the reaction of of many of the the smart folks in Athens. That condescending, you know, there's about nothing worse than for somebody to be condescending in the way they talk to you. You know, my brother-in-law said to me one time about this. He put his arm around me and he said, it's okay, you just don't understand. And I'm like, that's such a condescending thing to say. So Paul says they, some of them mocked him. That condescension is really the first, um, the initial reaction that I got from my, my mom and dad and brother and sister, really all of our family. And then for me, at least, that, that condescending thing morphed into some pretty nasty anger. That's a whole other story, though, for another day. But here, some laughed. But others said, hey. Maybe we need to talk about this a little more. Still others, the Bible tells us here, some others got saved and joined him. So his time wasn't wasted, y'all, in Athens. Even though most of them did not give their lives to the Lord, some did. Some did, you know. Let me give you a few little nuggets from Paul. A few effective ways that you and I can approach a know-it-all world. I think that's the, what I named this message, a know-it-all world. Number one is this. Watch for, for ways in conversations to find common ground. Paul went where the people were physically and where they were intellectually. You and I can't witness to an atheist the same way that we would witness to somebody who believes in God but maybe doesn't accept the gospel. Y'all, it doesn't work. An atheist doesn't believe in God. You start talking about the cross, he doesn't believe in God. you got to get him in their minds, wh- where they're at. And so you've got to watch for places of, to find common ground, number one. Number two, for people that do on some level profess a belief in God, you got to highlight their warped view of who he is. In Athens, Paul gently but firmly exposed the errant views that they had on God. That he is knowable. And on that issue, they were dead wrong. And Paul, he, that needed to be corrected. Number two. Number three, find a way to... This is a big one. Find a way to nurture that, that part of each person that wants to know God. Even if they would not say that initially. Paul knew that there was something inside of every one of us. Some DNA thing inside of every person. That makes us at some point yearn to know God, yearn that there's something that's beyond us, some uh, God gene or something that is in there. When we talk to people who don't have a relationship with the Lord, we need to assume that that's there and we need to nurture that. Look what verse 27 Paul, Paul says that they should seek God and, and, and perhaps feel their way towards him, like feel their way towards him and, and, and ultimately to find him. And then he says he's not this distant God that he is in fact he's not far from each one of us. And and inherent is that is that he wants a relationship with you. And I said it I say it all the time that he'll hunt you down through all these different moments of your life and you run away and he hunts you over here and he wants to find you and he throws you little nuggets. And most of the time it's hindsight. You look back and say, Oh my gosh, that was God doing things and he saved me. And I was in, if I was in, in on the battlefield and there's no reason that I didn't get shot and he, because God saved you It all kinds of different things because he wants that relationship with you. Y'all, my wife's been working on a movie for about six weeks, and it wrapped middle of the week before last. And there's a there's a gentleman in that that there was an actor in that movie, and I believe he's about 70 years old, but he's really 70 going on 50. He doesn't look like he's 70, doesn't act like he's 70, and 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 and, and I'm going to say a good guy, and some of you are going to say there's no such thing, and I get that from worldly perspectives. Me and him have become friends, and and this guy had never. Se- about 70 years old, never stepped foot a day in his life in a church, not one time, until about five weeks ago he came in here and he sat on the very back road back there. First time he'd ever come to church. And you know he's, and he, and he's, and he, and he said to me, I didn't, I didn't come to church to come to church. I came to church because you and I have become friends and I wanted to come see you. He said, the problem is I listened to every word that you said. And I'm like, that's the greatest compliment I think I've ever heard in my life. And then I'm thinking, oh, man, I didn't say something stupid that day. That Anyway, so, so God has been working on this dude. He served in Vietnam, and, and now he, he looks back and he says, God saved my life five times when I was in Vietnam. He just, one little God thing after the next, and last, not last Tuesday night, but the Tuesday night before, we're in Arizona, and it's about 2 o'clock in the morning, and uh, they're, st- they're still working, and, and it's about 2 o'clock in the morning, and, me and another gentleman named Kevin and another guy named Aaron and another guy named Jonathan, we presented Tom with a Bible. And we—he ne- dude never owned a Bible, never read one word in a Bible in his whole life. And we, we wrote in it, and when we started to give it to him, he just started weeping. And he's like, y'all shouldn't have done this. And he said, y'all are a bunch of idiots. Why are you doing this to me? And he turns around because he kind of doesn't want us to see him crying. And he's this big burly guy. And we sat there, and we're talking, and we're talking, and, and he says to me, he said, I'm so glad, I'm so thankful, really, that I've got you and, and Kevin, this other guy, that I got you and Kevin, that y'all pray for me. And that just hit a wrong chord with me. I said, bro, have I, I, have I said his name? Because I didn't want to. Okay, we're going to call him Bill. I said, I said, as honored as I am to pray for you, and as honored as Kevin is to pray for you, you don't need us. You don't need us. I said, bro, you can have your own relationship with the one who spoke the world into existence. You can have a relationship. You can't have my relationship. You can't have his relationship. You can have your own and I said, the veil tore. And some of you may know what that means, but I, as soon as the words came out of my mouth, I thought, this guy has absolutely no idea what I just said. So thank the Lord, we had about 15 more minutes. And I, and I said, and, I, and so I said, let me tell you what this means, Bill. I said, way back in the day, I said, the Holy of Holies is in the temple. It's in the middle of the temple and in the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. And when I said that, his eyes kind of looked, and I said, you seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? And he said, yeah. I said, you know the box that the flames came out of and burnt up the Nazis' face? I said, that's the Ark of the Covenant. I said, they believed that, and that was the very presence of the Lord was, was hovering above the mercy seat, which was the lid of that Ark. I said, the Lord, it's like that's where he lived. And I said, there's this big curtain around that, and only the high priest got to go in there, and only one time a year on the Day of Atonement, because the high priest would go in and he would petition the Lord for forgiveness for the people. I said, but he only got to go in there once a year, and they had to tie a rope around his leg, because if he died in there, they had to drag his dead body out. Nobody else got to go in there, and the high priest is, is, is begging the Lord for forgiveness for the people, and I said, well, but here's what happened, Bill. I said, when Jesus is hanging on the cross and the Bible said, and he's crucified and beaten mercilessly, the Bible says that that he said, It is finished and breathed his last. And and I said, "What, What was finished, Bill? What was finished was the work that he came to accomplish. And what was the work? The work was to give us access to God, ourselves. And I said, when he said that. It's finished, and he breathed his last. I said, "Bro, that curtain tore in half, and we get to go in there. We don't need no high priest, y'all. You don't need to be confessing your sins to no high priest. You need to be asking the Creator of the world for forgiveness yourself." I said, "You get access, man. You don't. You don't get my access. I get my own. You don't get Kevin's. You get your own." I said, and. And he looked at me, and it was just so funny. We're walking down this, this set out in the middle of the desert in Arizona, and, and it's like where Gunsmoke was filmed. And so I'm thinking, I need me a gun. And we're walking down, and, and he said, he said, I saw the light bulb kind of go off. And he said, think about the power. I said, that's the whole point. The Holy Spirit will come to live inside of you, and you will have the Holy Spirit's power. God will be living inside of you. He's just weeping. Y'all, it was just this beautiful thing. You get your own relationship with the Lord, and he wants you to have it so bad. So when you run into people, nurture that. You know, nurture that thought. Got about two more. Study, study, the world and the world's ways. Paul was a student of the culture. Christians had this real, real tendency to isolate, to insulate, to run and hide, to gather up in holy huddles and avoid the world, avoid the ways of the world, avoid the world's writing and singing and influencing and thinking. I don't think it should be that way. I believe that it is critical that we learn to speak in the language of the world in the, in the language that the world understands maybe that's a better way to say it not that the message changes because the message doesn't change ever but the manner in which you and I speak the message has got to ebb and flow over time and culture please understand that we got to speak the same message in the way that the world in whatever time period we live will understand it number four number five offer proofs of Christianity and and what is the proof? what is the proof? the proof is the resurrection the proof is the resurrection the proof is the dead guy walked out of a grave alive that's the proof Paul spoke of it all the time resurrection is the focal point of the faith without that fact you got nothing you got nothing If the resurrection is false, you got nothing. Christianity doesn't hinge on the mode of baptism. Christianity doesn't hinge on the color of the carpet. Christianity hinges on did the one that hung on that cross enter the grave completely dead and walk out completely alive. That's what our faith hinges on. And Paul said it in a number of different ways. Number six, got to make clear every person's accountability for his or her life. And I'm not saying be a jerk, don't be a jerk. Compassionate truth. Compassionate truth. Verse 30 says it black and white. He commands all people to repent. Don't remove repentance from the deal. we got to turn. It doesn't mean we we got to be Perfect, we can't be perfect, but we got to turn. Paul didn't mince words, and there comes a time when you and I got to have a life audit. We got to look in the mirror at the man or woman in the mirror and and take a little audit of what's going on. Last thing is this expect a variety of responses. Paul received all kinds of different responses. Some folks are going to be jealous, some folks are going to tell lies on you. Some folks are gonna misrepresent what you say. Some are gonna misrepresent what you're doing. Some are gonna accuse you of of being a troublemaker, of being a wave-maker. Some are gonna agitate the people that you're trying to reach. Some are gonna scoff at you. Some are gonna mock at you. Some are gonna laugh at you. Some are gonna flat-out reject you. Some of your family is gonna put you to the curb. Some are gonna call you liars. But some some are going to believe i don't know what the number is i got no idea but some are going to believe and some are worth it if some is one y'all he'll hunt down one read the bible he a sheep gets lost i got 10,000 other sheep i'm hunting for the one that's lost and the one is worth it and your friend who you've been talking to about Jesus for 25 years and you get so mad because they don't listen to a word you say don't stop don't beat them upside the head with a Bible don't condemn them love them love them some scripture says some will believe I can't say it enough that some, whatever the number is, some are worth it. Some are worth it. And you know, it's crazy. There is no record of a church being founded by Paul in Athens. None. He, he moves on in chapter 18 to Corinth. There's no record of, the, of a church in Athens. But don't think that his visit to Athens wasn't worth it. It was worth it because of the sum. The sum could have been two. The two that are mentioned. I don't know. Y'all, why do you why do you think I preach to stand up here and preach the gospel every Sunday? So, some are going to believe. And the some that are here that already believe need to be more equipped to go find their some that don't believe. We have a responsibility to preach the gospel every single week, every day. You know. The responsibility of the messenger is to present the message. And if you're a Christ follower, you're a messenger. So you got a responsibility to to preach the message. Paul for sure did that, right? The fruit ain't your responsibility. The fruit ain't my responsibility. I ain't going to save nobody. I'm going to present the message. You're not going to save anybody. As big and bad and strong and smart as you might be, you ain't saving nobody. But Lord knows, man. Present the message. Present the story. Present your own story. Present when you entered the Holy of Holies and you hung out with the creator of the universe. Tell your friends about it. What a cool story. And your friends are tailor-made for you. And you're tailor-made for your friends. Your message, God ordains all of that. And he puts people in your path that need to hear your story. They don't need to hear my story. I don't know them and they don't know me. But they know you and they trust you. Let them hear your story. So my prayer is that if you're in here and you're a believer, you're a Christian, you're a Christ follower, that you'll accept the role of messenger. You got it whether you accept it or not. My, my, my wish and my hope is that you'll accept it. My wish and my hope and my prayer, if, if that's not the case, if you're not a Christ follower, is that you will accept the message presented today. At least, don't go to sleep tonight without considering the message. The band sang a song a little while ago. In that song was a line that said that he interposed his precious blood. Think about that. His precious blood stood in the gap. That's what that means. His precious blood splattered all over that cross in this horrifically ugly yet majestically beautiful scene outside those gates in Jerusalem. His blood stood in the gap. His blood stood in the gap of me and you spending an eternity in torment or spending an eternity in the precious arms of the Lord. Like that's true if you don't believe it or not. It's just the fact. Because the resurrection really did happen. In history, in real time, 2,000-ish years ago, it happened. And so he interposed his precious blood, and James talked about, for several minutes, about our sin being booted as far as the east is from the west. This thing that I said to my friend in Arizona you know when I said look man I said when he died on the cross and he said it is finished and I told him that because that he said what is finished and I said the work he came to accomplish and he kind of looked at me a little funny and I said your sins are forgiven the sin of every human that ever lived or ever will live were forgiven on that cross by the Lord in that moment. Every single one. He said, "I don't deserve it." I said, "Neither do I." But y'all, that and if you're here and you, you and, and and your mind immediately goes to you don't deserve it, like none of us deserve it. No human that's ever lived deserves it. It's not about deserving it. That's a stoic way of thought. Because you could never, there's nothing you could do to ever deserve it. And y'all, that's so hard for people to understand. Particularly the rougher your story, the the the, the deeper in the pit that you may have gotten or been in in the past or maybe the deeper that you're in the pit today you can't get yourself out of the pit i don't care how many alcohol anonymous i don't i don't care how many of those you go to the lord can though like that like that he can reach in there and pull you out of the pit he did it for me and so i'm when i'm having that conversation with him I'm like bro like it's not about deserving The blood was spilled it's done and it's over with and it's a colossally gigantic thing if you think about every sin that every human ever has or ever will commit was paid for on that cross i said you just got to accept it you gotta you gotta know that that was for you and i'm telling y'all whatever you is out there that has that, that, that you've never accepted that he died for you and if you don't accept it now he will not stop hunting you down so you might as well. <laughs> you just might as well. That's right. He says give up. How does that play out? I deny self. I deny self. I dethrone Ed and enthrone the Lord. Because the Lord's on the throne whether I dethrone myself or not. So I you just might as well go on and give in. <laughs> right? So if that's you today, here's the deal. You, you just got to turn away from you just got to turn away from the sin I'm not saying that's easy no I'm not saying that's complicated you just got to turn away from it turn towards him confess that that what happened on that cross really did happen and that he really went in a grave dead and came out alive and, you, and, and believe it and accept it and the Holy Spirit will come to reside in your life he'll come to, to live inside of you and y'all we want to walk that with you we do When Norm was up here and he wanted you to fill out a connection card, it's not so we could bring you an apple pie. Like, no. It's so we could pray for you by, he said it, by name. We want to pray for you. And we're going to pray for you whether you never walk back in the doors again if we know your name. Every day. That's what happens, y'all. So let me close this out with this prayer. and We're going to sing another song. and. Lord, we love you today. And, Lord, my prayers that there are people here today that would hear you, that heard your word. Lord, they heard the gospel. They heard, they heard the simple sort of formula that we repent, we turn away from it. Lord, we believe on your name. We believe that you paid a price for us. And, Lord, that you, unlike what my mom said, yes, in fact, you did come back to life. And you made that life that you call an abundant life available to us. Lord, my prayer is that there are people right now that would cry out, that they would scratch at the door, even today. Cry out that you would save them. And we know that you will. So, Lord, I lift this body up to you in your son's name. Amen. And y'all look, we got people in our prayer team over there would love to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you. You know, if if you want to come down here and pray while we're singing and worshiping and praising the Lord in this last song, you're invited down here. If you got some junk you need to leave at the cross, leave it, leave it. He's not going to drag it back up. So if you need to leave it, leave it right here today.